David Cullen Bain, the Dunedin man found guilty of murdering his family, appeared to go into a state of shock on hearing the guilty verdict. He started saying black hands, that they were taking them away, black hands. Do you find the accused guilty or not guilty? Not guilty. <laughs> I want to assure you, I did not kill my family. Robin Bain was a depressed and homicidal maniac who snapped and shot his family to prevent the world knowing the truth about his incestuous relationship with his daughter Laniette. Only David deserved to stay. That essentially is the foundation of David's defence. In the last episode, we looked at the hard clues pointing to David as the killer of the family In this episode, it's Robin's turn. I'm journalist Martin Van Bainen, and this is a podcast series about the Bain family murders. On June the 20th, 1994, five members of the Bain family were shot in their home in Dunedin. Only the father, Robin Bain, who appeared to have shot the family, and then himself, or his son David, the only survivor, could have been responsible. David was convicted of the murders in 1995 but acquitted after a second trial in 2009. So what about Robin? What evidence was there against him? To start with, he had a few superficial bruises on the back of his hands that the defence claimed were the result of the fight with Stephen. Alex Dempster, the pathologist who performed Robin's autopsy, said the bruises were old enough to have already started drying and he could see rounding of the margins indicating they had started to heal. At David's first trial in 1995, he made these comments, now read by an actor. These were not fresh, and in my opinion were inflicted probably 18 hours or more previously. These injuries could not have occurred in the period, say one to three hours before death, definitely not. Dempster wasn't quite as dogmatic in David's second trial, and said he could not discount the possibility that one of the bruises was recent, perhaps being inflicted any time in the 24 hours before his death. Robin had been working on the spouting at 65 Every Street over the weekend before the shootings, so a few nicks and bruises on his hands were not surprising. David's defence also produced a retired oral surgeon called Donald Adams, who said the pattern of the bruises was consistent with gloved knuckles hitting Stephen's front teeth. However, he was somewhat undermined by his concession that the small bruises could just as easily have been produced by something else. As could be expected, blood was also found on Robin and his clothes, but none of the blood tested was from anyone in the family. It was all his own. A difficulty arose because the blood on Robin's hands wasn't properly photographed, and not all of it was sampled, tested and then retained if the initial testing was unsuccessful. Some samples tested were not large enough to allow the DNA technology of the time to give a result, but none of the samples were kept by police in case the technology improved, which of course it did. For instance, scrapings were taken from underneath Robin's fingernails and contained something that looked like blood, but the amount was regarded as inadequate for testing with the technology at the time. Unfortunately, the scrapings were sent to the dump in a police clean-out of samples in early 1996. Robin suffered from skin complaints, so if the material was blood, 
It probably came from him scratching himself. But the lack of testing left the question open and didn't do the police any favours. Likewise, the blood on Robin's hands. Its presence could be plausibly explained by him reaching up to his wound with his left hand after he was shot, or by him touching blood on his clothing, or even by blood spurting from his head wound and landing on his hands, but the samples went to the dump. The Crown's resulting inability to counter speculation attracted the defence contention that the blood on Robin's hands belonged to some of the deceased family members, despite the defence's acceptance that Robin must have rinsed or wiped his hands after using the rifle. The problem with that scenario was that there was no blood on the door handle of the lounge where the defence maintained Robin took his own life. If Robin was the killer, he had to open and close the lounge door with his bloodied hands and then type the message on the computer. But no blood was found on the lounge door handle or on the computer. The defence could speculate, but the small amount of blood on Robin's hands fell far short of a solid connection with the shootings. So David's defence was looking for a piece of stronger evidence that tied Robin to the murders. It decided its best hope was the footprints found in Margaret's bedroom and in the hallway near Laniette's doorway. The footprints were found on the same day as the shootings after police had sprayed the floors with luminol, a chemical which reacts with blood and gives off a blue glow that can only be seen in the dark. The glow is not strong and it can be difficult to see the extremities. The reaction lasts for about 45 seconds and then fades. ESR scientist Peter Henschel detected five sock prints, none visible to their naked eye and all made by a right foot. He measured the best impression at 280 millimetres long and reported the print was complete from heel to toe. Remember the word complete because a lot rides on it. The fact Henschel only measured the area of the strongest luminescence should also be kept in mind. So who made the prints? Robin was wearing socks and shoes when he was found dead and his socks were clear of any blood. So if the prints were his, he must have changed his socks after the shootings, that is, before shooting himself. David, however, had blood on his white running socks when police found him on the floor of his bedroom on June the 20th. One of the socks was more heavily blood-stained on the heel and toe area than the other, and testing of some of the blood showed it was Stephen's. The prints could easily accommodate David's eventual version of events. That is, that after discovering his mother dead, he walked around the house in his socks, perhaps in shock, to find the bodies of his siblings. According to this scenario, he must have stood in blood in Stephen's room, thereby getting blood on his socks, and then left the footprints as already described. In other words, conceding the prints were made by him after he came home from his paper round did not damage his account of what happened. But it was extremely important to the defence to show the footprints were made by Robin because that helped David on a number of fronts. The first was that it put Robin in a part of the house where he, on the Crown case, never went on the mornings of the murders. Secondly, if Robin made the prints, he must have changed his clothes after the shootings, perhaps because he didn't want to meet his maker with his family's blood on him. But if the defence is right, he didn't mind having blood on his hands. In this scenario, Robin would have bundled up the blood-soiled clothes 
and put them in the laundry basket downstairs for David to wash. It was indeed a very strange thing to do, and if the footprints were made by Robin, this bizarre feature of the case could be explained and help David's defence no end. So what did the defence rely on for the claim that the footprints were made by Robin? The footprints were not an issue at the first trial, it being accepted that they had been made by David, but at David's second trial the defence said it came down to the numbers. The defence team claimed that tests performed by both Crown and defence experts showed that Robin's foot, which was 270 millimetres long, was far more likely to have left the 280 millimetre print than David's foot, which is 300 millimetres in length. The tests certainly showed that a stockinged foot dipped in a tray of blood generally left behind luminal prints larger than the length of the foot. So the defence said that David's foot should have left an impression over 300 millimetres if he was the shooter, not the 280 millimetre print measured. However, the crucial question was how accurately the tests had replicated the way the actual prints were made. For instance, the killer had not stepped in a tray of blood to soak the whole sock as the testers' models did before making the prints. Testers didn't know what pressure the killer had applied when walking or standing, or how he walked, or on what sort of carpet he walked on. In any event, you can see why the defence had a lot riding on the footprints. When it came time to give his final address to the jury in the second trial, David's lawyer, Michael Reed QC, hammered the point in his usual adamant way. Our apologies for the audio quality. The test done always on these circuits to prove the point. They have to be right. There's nonsense to suggest if those bloody sock prints are wrong, which they obviously are. What was Robin doing wandering the house, knowing of the deaths, being involved, having sock, blood on his socks? And what it helps us even more to decide is this. The Crown says, well, when he was found dead, he wasn't wearing bloodied socks. We say, of course he wasn't. Because we know he changed his clothes. He took off the green jersey, the outer clothes. He put on new shoes and socks. Why? That is a very interesting question. Why? And the reason why is because he was mentally depressed, irrational. And as I said to you before, you cannot ascribe a rational act to what Robin did. You just can't. You see, it's being suggested to us, and I can put it to you as a submission, we never know, that people do do strange things when they commit suicide. They go and dress up sometimes. They put on their Sunday best to go and hang themselves. They do odd things. Kieran Raftery, in his final address, did his best to counter what he knew was coming from Reed. He said Henschel, when using the word complete to describe the prints, was drawing a distinction between a partial print and one that showed the heel and toe area. There was no valid comparison between the tests done by the forensic scientists in their laboratories, Raftery said, and what was actually happening in the house that night. He said a footprint measuring 280 millimetres, still showed plenty of heel and toe. The defence assertion that those can only have been left by Robin, and therefore Robin was the killer, and therefore David Bain is innocent, 
is a nonsense. Those prints are well capable of being left behind by the man who said himself that he walked that route in socks. Socks which we know from the forensic examination done later were in fact blood. The footprints evidence was obviously unsatisfactory for a number of reasons. It would have helped if police had removed the carpet on which the footprints were made, but that was another slip-up. The main camp also believed David's innocence was categorically established by timings in the case. This is a complex topic, but the most important elements can be boiled down into some basic points. The first thing to note is the defence argument that David would have been crazy to leave the house after shooting four of the family and risk his father finding the bodies while he was out on his paper run. In fact, the risk wasn't that great. If Robin had gone into the house and gone to the kitchen or toilet before David returned, he did not need to go past any of the rooms in which there were bodies. David was also probably very familiar with Robin's timetable and likely get-up time. The crucial time ended up being the time the computer was switched on that morning. Remember, the killer had typed the message, Sorry, you are the only one who deserved to stay. But it was the time the computer was switched on that was important. There was no way of knowing when the message was typed, except that it could have been written any time after the computer was turned on that morning and before the police arrived at Every Street. So if David could not have turned on the computer because he was still on his paper round, his defence was looking a lot better. He wouldn't be entirely in the clear because Robin could have turned it on and still have been shot by David. But more on that later. For many reasons, one of which has to do with the incompetent way police managed the analysis of the computer, the precise time will never be known. The best estimate is that the computer was switched on somewhere between about 20 to 7 and 10 to 7 that morning. The defence argument was essentially that when the computer was turned on, David was still outside the house, coming home from his paper round. In other words, only Robin could have switched on the computer. The defence's favoured switch-on time, that is the time the computer was turned on by Robin, was around 20 to 7. It argued David wasn't home before quarter to 7. These times, the defence argued, were supported by sightings of David out on the street coming home. Denise Laney, a witness who was driving to work, said she saw David at his gate in Every Street between 20 to 7 and quarter to 7, although the defence camp said she must have seen him at exactly quarter to seven. Laney refused to commit to a definite time, partly because she believed she wasn't late for work, where she started at 6.45am. If she was right, she would have seen David several minutes earlier. Another witness, also driving to work, said she saw David at Heath Street, about 20 to seven, although it could have been earlier. Heath Street runs off every street and is a brisk two or three minute uphill walk to David's house. David, a fit athlete, could have run it much quicker. That meant he could have been in the house around 20 to 7. The Crown said the switch-on time was about four minutes after David was seen at Heath Street, which gave David enough time to get back into the house after his paper run and to turn on the computer. David initially told police he got home at 20 to 7, but later said he checked his watch at Heath Street and his watch showed it was 20 to 7. Unfortunately, police did not check David's watch for accuracy. It's clear the timings are all over the place, 
but it has to be conceded that David was certainly cutting things rather fine if he was the shooter and the person who turned on the computer. He could not have wasted much time after coming home before switching it on. One possibility is that Robin had turned on the computer and was in the computer alcove when David came home. David then grabbed the rifle from his room, accosted his father, perhaps making him kneel before shooting him. The other possibility is that David knew the time of the computer switch on could be checked. He mentioned the computer workings when he talked to police and used that to bolster his alibi. Under this scenario, David would have come back from his paper run earlier than he said and then gone out again to make it look like he was still coming home when the computer was turned on. It seems far-fetched, but don't forget Mark Buckley's evidence about David's plan to rape a jogger and use his round as an alibi. One bit of evidence supports the scenario that David was concerned he'd be seen at a particular time. One of his paper round customers, an elderly lady, came forward before David's second trial to say David had made a point of ensuring she saw him. The woman, who died before the trial in 2009, said she had asked David not to come onto her deck to deliver the paper because it got her dog barking. David had complied with her request for about a year, but on the morning of the murders, had walked onto the deck, causing her dog Boris to bark. In the end, the timing evidence was left uncertain and fertile ground for the defence to sow seeds of doubt. The other main string to the defence bow revolved around the police investigation. After many exhaustive probes over the years, it's hard to find anyone whose work on the investigation or the case has not been criticised, but police have borne the brunt of the attack. For instance, this is Justice Binney, voiced by an actor in his report in 2012. The evidence established the miscarriage of justice was the direct result of a police investigation characterised by carelessness and lack of due diligence. This is not a case of one or two isolated errors. There was an institutional failure on the part of the Dunedin CIB. The main thrust of this argument was that police botched the investigation and due to those mistakes, potential evidence pointing to Robin being the killer was missed. The argument usually neglects to mention that the failures might also have missed evidence fatal to David's case. Let's look at some of the less than perfect police work which the defence was able to turn to its advantage. The police should, in a perfect world, have swabbed Robin's hands within the first three or four hours after he was found, so tests for firearm discharge residue could be done. Police should, at the very least, have bagged his hands or wrapped them in plastic. Firearm discharge residue is microscopic material emitted by a firearm as bullets are fired. Not all rifles emit the material, but tests showed David's rifle did. The effectiveness of the residue tests declines the longer the body is left. In ideal conditions, minute particles from the residue can still be found on a live person up to two or three hours after they have used a firearm, as long as the shooter has not washed since. On a dead body, the discharge can remain much longer because the residue is lost mainly through movement. Skin was removed from Robin's hands in the mortuary, later tested by ESR, and no residue was found. David's hands were also clear of residue, but he had, by his own account, washed his hands before the police arrived. 
The defence camp claimed the tests done properly and on time would have shown Robin was the shooter and exonerated David. What the defence neglected to say was the test might also have helped to exclude Robin and strengthen the case against David. So what else had the police missed that could have helped David? We have already covered the police failure to retain samples, which, when tested with modern techniques, might have supported David's pleas of innocence. In this regard, the police handicapped their own case, because if the samples had been tested, the results could also have bolstered the case against David. Some exhibits, which were retested, tended to vindicate the police. For instance, Joe Caram, in his book David and Goliath, in words now read by an actor, rather dangerously claimed that if all the stains on Robin's garments were tested, I have no doubt it would have been found to be the blood from deceased members of his family. The garments were tested again in 1997, and no blood from any other member of the family was detected. The defence was also scathing about the lack of care police took over some of the timings. Police had an accurate time base with a clock at the Dunedin police station, but officers working on the investigation did not synchronise their watches with the clock. As already mentioned, it soon became very important to know when the computer was switched on. Kevin Anderson, the detective who helped with the computer analysis, needed to record accurate times, but incredibly, his watch had no seconds hand, no individual minute marks on its face, and was not checked for accuracy at the time he helped the computer expert. Another detective checked the watch seven days later, and it was found to be two minutes fast. His job sheet, noting the watch was fast, was provided to the defence in a dump of documents for the first trial, and missed by David's lawyer. The mistake would have put the computer turn-on time used by the prosecution in the first trial back by two minutes, and helped David's alibi defence. In the second trial, the timing deficiencies became useful ammunition for the defence. In that trial, Michael Reed QC attacked Jim Doyle, who, as Detective Senior Sergeant in 1994, was an effective charge of the inquiry. Effectively, you've told us you're in charge, and you say the significance of approximately two minutes of a computer switch on time compared to coming through the gate at 6.45, wasn't significant to the jury? As far as I was concerned, Mr Reid, there were other factors. The computer switch on time was just one of them, and it was not the major factor that I was concerned about. All right, I'll bring you back to it. Someone put a message on the computer, right? Yes. You're the only one who deserved to stay, I think, was the word. Correct. It was important to establish what time the computer was switched on because that gave the earliest time that message could have been put there. Correct. It could have been put there later, but it couldn't have been put there earlier. Correct. So, if that computer was switched on at 6.42, which is the evidence that the jury should have been told, on, told of, and if the jury had been properly told that Lady's new statement confirming 6.45 
and confirming identification. It gave David Bain an alibi of at least three minutes. And if you take into account the time then he had to get into the house, wash his hands, and get upstairs, which everyone generally agrees is at least a minute and probably two minutes, you're extending the alibi. Now, why wasn't the jury told of that? It gave David Bain an alibi in respect of the time the computer was switched on. That's no, all. No, it didn't, Mr. Dory, you're wrong. You see, if he was at the gate having returned from the vapor round at 6.45, and if the computer had been switched on at 6.42, the jury should have been told, then David could not have got into the house to do it, and he couldn't have been the killer. End of story. Of course, that wasn't quite the end of the story, because Reed was placing too much faith on the accuracy of the times he was quoting, and the 6.45am time was sketchy, but Reed had made his point. Doyle also knew about the watch being fast before the start of David's first trial. So it could be as many as nearly three, or it could be a minute. It could be. Right. That's the point. But the point is this, Mr. Doyle. You knew of that change, got the job sheet, and you were the officer in charge. We know that, yes? Yes. You sat through the trial with Mr. Crowders, yes? Yes. And you did nothing to correct that timing that went to the jury. You sat on your hands and did nothing. That point, I had no reason to think that I had uh, a situation where I had to do something. The defence camp also castigated the police for not allowing pathologist Alex Dempster to examine the bodies at the earliest opportunity. Dempster was at the scene at 10am, but did not start his examination until midday. The defence claimed an earlier examination of the bodies would have allowed Dempster to more accurately assess the time and sequence of the deaths. Another opportunity to clear David from suspicion was lost, the defence said. Due to the lateness of getting into the house, Dempster decided not to take rectal body temperatures. Although body temperatures are far from accurate in determining the time of the death, later official inquiries said the information would have been very useful. As I've said, some police decisions did them no favours and gave the defence openings which would be rightfully exploited. The police's failure to fully investigate Laniette's incest claims left the investigation open to claims police had a closed mind and were just out to get David. Early on in the investigation, police had several sources who were suggesting Robin and Laniette might have had an incestuous relationship and very soon knew of Laniette working as a prostitute. Their apparent lack of interest in the incest allegations provided more ammunition for the defence and allowed Reed to hammer away at Doyle again. So what did you find out about Rob early on? About his mental state? Nothing negative that I can recall in those first few days, no. Well, I will bring you back to that. What about Laniette and prostitution? What did you know about that? Yes, that had uh, surfaced reasonably early in the piece. On the face of it, Mr. Doyle, this was a family killed in the 
family that, although the house was a bit of a mess, <coughs> there was nothing obviously wrong with the family dynamics that you knew of initially. Not initially. But you suddenly found out that a pretty young girl in that family was a prostitute. Didn't that raise a red flag or surprise you? In what sense? Well, it's not often, is it, that a family like that has one of the daughters who's a prostitute back in those days in Dunedin? It's not every day of the week you find that out, is it? Oh, I guess not. No. So, putting it at its lowest, it was unusual, wasn't it? I think uh, every family has its, put it that way, I guess. So, uh, and I guess, in, in, as being a police officer, we, we are inclined to deal with uh, some pretty tragic situations in families all the time. So, in that sense, it didn't send out huge alarm bells to me. Prostitution is often connected with criminal activity, isn't it? It is. And here you were, you suddenly had five deaths. You had one of the girls was a prostitute. And we all know that prostitutes, unfortunately, are targets of murder from time to time. Yes. You've seen tragic cases in Christchurch. Correct. So there was at least a red flag to be pursued. It was just a, a, another factor concerning the uh, tragedy of the victim, I guess. But were the police mistakes serious enough to make any case against David unsafe and fatally compromised? We'll come back to that later. In the next episode, we'll look at another crucial issue in the case. Did Robin Bain commit suicide? If he did, it was game over for the prosecution. We look forward to you joining us for the next episode. Thank you for listening. This podcast is a joint stuff in Tandem Studios production. Written and presented by Martin Van Bainen. Audio engineered and co-produced by Brett Robertson. And produced by Dave Dunlay and Kamala Heyman.